This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. Where we give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Welcome back to Practical for Your Practice. I am Dr. Jenna Ermold, one of your hosts. I am joined by co-host Dr. Kevin Holloway. How's it going, Kevin? Pretty good, Jenna. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm always glad, always glad to do this with you and have a fun yep. time. And today's going to be especially fun uh, because we have the director of the Center for Deployment Psychology, Dr. David Riggs, joining us today. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Hey, Jenna. Hey, Kevin. Hey. I, I, you know, I've had the chance to listen to all your podcasts, but this is the first time you guys have invited me to be on. So, you know, well, this is well, a great honor. That was purposeful. We figured if you listen to a lot of them, you would kind of get a sense of, you know, what what the what it's like <laughs> and, you know, how how to interact. And uh, it was it was it was very intentional. Now we wanted, wanted to be Dave, invested. Right. We've wanted Dave on the podcast for a while. We're really, really glad um, that he can join us today. As uh, many of you listeners out there who treat who treat clients with PTSD, um, you might be aware that the new DODVA clinical practice guidelines for PTSD came out very, very recently in June of 2023. And um, we were really lucky to have Dave gave a fabulous webinar that was called a quick walk, walk through the new VA DOD clinical practice guidelines for PTSD back in June of 2023. Um, and even though it was a quick walkthrough, you definitely covered a lot of ground to include guidelines for the work group and project team, evidence-based clinical practice guideline development process and methodology, the scope of the guidelines, uh, some of the key questions uh, the evidence-based clinical practice recommendations, algorithms providers can use. So even though it was quick, it was pretty comprehensive. So we wanted to invite you back to the podcast so that we could maybe zero in a little more and focus on the specific clinical practice recommendations. And even more specific than that, because of course the CPGs offer recommendations also for the assessment and diagnosis of PTSD as well as prevention of PTSD. But we really wanted to dig into those recommendations regarding treatment. Um, but, but before we get into that, maybe you could give us a little sense of why you were invited. Why were you on this work group to begin <laughs> with? What qualifies you? And, um, you know, in general, what, what is the point of these CBG, CBGs? Why should our listeners even care about them? So I guess to answer the first part of that question, I was invited. Um, I mean, I, I've been working in the field of PTSD for a long time now, 30 years or so. Uh, and, uh, I uh, was fortunate enough to work with, with Dr. Edna Foa in developing prolonged exposure therapy and, and doing some of the early studies on, on that treatment. Uh, and I've worked in, a, in in both the VA and DOD settings, so I think that helps. And, and maybe because I was also on the previous one in 
2017 or whatever it was when we when we did this the last time and they they just wanted some sense of continuity so so that's i think why they asked me um in terms of why these are important um i think you know we we, we talk a lot about um encouraging clinicians to use treatments that work but we don't always talk about how we know they work and one of the things that that uh these guidelines provide are are just exactly that guidelines to to uh you know give a clinician um a fighting chance of identifying things that the the research suggests should help their clients and, and I, I really think that that's our goal is to is to provide not not restrictions you know you don't have to do certain things but but rather guidelines that give you kind of a left and right bumper to say okay here, you know th these are the things you should at least be looking towards i think that's something important to highlight too right so we've, we've had people ask questions in workshops about the CPGs and, you know, what are they for? Like, do these apply only to patients that are seen in VAs or in the DOD's health system? Um, are these requirements, like if you're going to work in those systems, you have to do these guidelines, or if you're going to get paid by an insurer, you have to, like, I think it's important to know what you just said, right? Th these are not forcing anybody to do anything in particular or telling them these are the only ways to do this, but kind of guidelines of this is what the research says. If, if you want to know what the research is, is having the most support for or the, the strongest support for, this is what the research says. Yeah, I think you caught it uh, uh, pretty accurately there, Kevin. I, I do think, you know, I, I had the opportunity to, uh, I've sat on this guideline or this uh, work group, uh, the, the previous one for the VA DOD, but I also um, sat on the ISTSS treatment guidelines committee. Um, and they take a slightly different approach, but um, one of the things that was unique, I think about this one, we, we really, we didn't focus only on, on research that was done with veterans and, and service members, but if there was research available that used or included veterans or, or service members, then it it um, won't say it rose to the top exactly, but but it 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 got noticed, right? So you know it was as we were talking about the evidence for or or the, the evidence that supported a particular treatment or didn't. Um, if there was a, a research a study that included the population that we're most interested in, then it, it got a little bit extra weight. That's really fascinating. So these are generally applicable. It's not just only if you're seeing veteran service members or, um, yeah, it, or happen to be working in one of those systems. Correct. Correct. A, a lot of the research is done with, with, individuals who've experienced trauma as civilians, whether it's, you know, sexual trauma or car accidents or whatever it might be. Um, and so we had to rely on those uh, data as well, not just data that were derived from, from service members and veterans. So these, I think, are generally applicable. So kind of, the, I guess, the big elephant in the room that you know, we were all waiting with uh, bated breath for the CPGs to come out this time. Like, what are those current top level you know, first line recommended treatments for PTSD? Well, I think it's important. Um, I'm happy to share that with you. It's, it's not a deep, dark secret. People can go to the website and, and find them. Uh, so I'm not trying to hedge, but I do think it's important to, to let people know that, again, that, that we're not saying these are the only treatments that work. And in fact, when we, when we talk about 
top line versus second line treatments or first line versus second line treatments. What we're really uh, differentiating there um, most of the time is the quality of the research, not necessarily the quality of the treatment. So I, I will say, you know, on the psychotherapy side, that that prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, and eye movement desensitization and, and reprocessing were identified as the first line psychotherapeutic treatments. Um, and second line treatments included uh, Anka Eller's cognitive therapy, written exposure therapy, and uh, present center therapy. And and the point that I want to make is that you know that distinction doesn't say that written exposure therapy is less effective than cognitive processing therapy, for example. It simply says the research base isn't as, as rich as for cognitive processing therapy. So in this case, written exposure therapy is a newer therapy. So it hasn't had as much time to get as much research done on it as, as some of those other treatments. And, and that's really the distinction that's made there. Yeah, so we haven't arrived at like some final decision forevermore. This is this the current state of the literature. This is the current state of the research. And it may be that a second line therapy in this current CPG somewhere down the road becomes a first line therapy because the research has matured more. Is that would that be accurate to say? That would be very accurate. And I would hope that it happens, right? One right. of the things that's that's in the guideline is you know, areas where we need more research. And, you know, one of the things we know um, clinically and, and also because of the, I mean, the reviews that we did is no one of these treatments works for everybody who receives it. You know, not as much as I love prolonged exposure therapy and think it can be highly effective, not everybody's going to respond well to it. Not everybody's going to choose to to engage with it. Um, so we need more options for clinicians. And, and, uh, and you know, one of the things that we talked about as a group, as we were identifying kind of which goes in, the, the, the terminology in the, in the uh, guideline is, you know, the, the first line therapies are recommended and the second line therapies are suggested. And that really just, again, reflects the strength of the, the research. But one of the things we worried about is that people would see that and say, oh, well, then I can't use written exposure therapy or I can't use uh, Eller's cognitive therapy. But that's not what we're saying. They are suggested because they, they have evidence that they can be effective. It's just that the richness of the research literature is not not as strong as, you know, both, well, all three, PE, CPT, and, and EMDR all developed in, you know, the early 1990s, and they've had 30 years to, to, to get that research base, whereas the others are younger. A, a bit of a head start, if you will. In the, yes, in exactly. exactly. And, and, you know, I guess in those... Along those lines, um, having been on the worker previously, what shifted from the last CPG? Did did anything kind of toggle in terms of uh, first yeah, versus was... second? <laughs> well, yes and no. Um, early in the, the process of developing the guidelines this time around, um, we had, as, as a large group, we had a discussion. So... I have to give a little bit of history here, sorry. But um, in the last uh, set of, of uh, VA DOD guidelines, um, we treated medication treatments and psychotherapies somewhat differently. 
So um, in the one two before this one, <laughs> they treated them, they, they, they reviewed kind of classes, right? So they reviewed SSRIs altogether as a class of medication. And they, and they reviewed uh, exposure-based therapies as a class of therapies. And then the last time around, we did it differently. The medications were each reviewed as individual medications, but the psychotherapies were reviewed as a class of psychotherapy. So last time in, in 2017, the recommendation was to use a manual, an individualized, manualized, trauma-focused therapy, right? And then it and then it listed some suggestions of things that might be included in that, which included prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR. Happened to also include written exposure therapy and Ehlers expo, or Ehlers cognitive therapy and a couple of others as well. Um, well, this time around, we said we, we have to at least treat everything the same, like, like that, equally. I shouldn't say the same, but, the, mm. but equally. So medications were reviewed as individual medications. What's the evidence for a particular medication as opposed to an entire class? And we did the same thing with psychotherapies. So instead of being able to say, hey, we recommend any manualized individual ther trauma-focused therapy, what, we, what we're saying now is we've got these three, PE, CPT, and EMDR, with, with really strong evidence that they're effective, and a lot of it. And we've got three others, written exposure and, and Ehlers cognitive therapy and present center therapy, which is not a trauma-focused therapy per se, but, but also has evidence that it is effective, that we think those can be effective too. They just don't have as much evidence as the first three do. And then there were a couple others that fell into a category that is broadly labeled neither for nor against. That is the evidence, there is either not enough research evidence or some of the evidence points one way and some points the other way, and we couldn't really make a call. And so there were a couple of the trauma-focused therapies that, that are included in that category this time around as well. I should probably, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling now, but I should probably mention the, the medications as well, um, because, you know, in terms of first-line treatments, uh, the, the guidelines recommend paroxetine, sertraline, and venlafaxine for treating PTSD. So, so there are medication options that are recommended like the, the, the evidence as, as strong for those as for the psychotherapies. Um, and then having said that, we still recommend psychotherapy above medication because the treatment, the, the effects tend to, to last longer. I think that's a, that's a really important point because again, obviously we're in the business, um, you know, not, not the business in terms of making money, but, you know, really passionate about helping train providers to use evidence-based psychotherapies. Um, so it's always reinforcing to hear that we're, we're doing the right thing. That is the, that is what we should be focusing on. And, and obviously um, we're not prescribers and well, we, we work with prescribers, but um, you know, we, we yeah, can keep but, training, Dave. That's what I'm hearing. We can keep doing our CPT and PE trainings, and that's good. <laughs> you you absolutely could, but there will be there will be providers who find themselves in situations where they don't have the opportunity to do 12 sessions of PE or, or, or sure. CPT, and and whether they're prescribers themselves or working with prescribers, it's nice to know that you've got another tool in the box, which is we've got these medications that seem um, to, to have very good evidence that they can help 
reduce the symptoms of PTSD, which is really ultimately what we're after. The goal, for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of the goal to reduce the symptoms of PTSD, Dave, yes. I'd like you to dig deep into your past. Uh, we all know that you are, uh, D- Dave has supervised a few of us at CDP and helped us learn things like prolonged exposure. So we really look up to him um, and, and see him as very expert in this. But I imagine in your early days, Dave, or at some point in your career, uh, things didn't go perfectly well for you. And we have a segment on, on all of our episodes now called EBP <clears throat> Confessions. And we would now, we open it, we, we welcome you into the confessional. Could you maybe talk to our uh, listeners about a time when you were, you know, doing one of these uh evidence-based protocols or manuals, and maybe things went a little bit sideways, uh, how you overcame that. And we'd, we'd love to hear a story from, from your past, Dave, if you have one. But before I do that, I know, Jenna, I, I taught UPE and supervised some of your cases. Kevin, I think I taught you at some point, too. You, you taught me. That was, that was my initial introduction to PE. So yeah, we're, we're both academic children of Dave Riggs. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm hearing PE. there. So now I don't think I can confess to you. Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but I but feel like you're well, also morph. responsible for our confessionals now. So, you know, by proxy. Uh, that's, that's probably true. I should probably know what you said. <laughs> well, so, in some ways, this, no, it's a good point, Dave, because I think one of the things we're trying to do with this segment is that, you know, even the experts aren't perfect all the time and it's okay. Like we're, we're making that, valid. And we want folks to feel like even if they're new to this, it's okay. They don't have to be perfect yet. Keep working on it and get better. You don't have to be perfect. So. Well, well then, then I should start this by telling your audience that, you know, the challenge is not me searching for that one mistake I made, but trying to, (laughs) you know, sift through all the mistakes I've made to figure out which one makes the best story. And I'm not sure that I'll figure it out. That even makes me feel better. (laughs) Um, You know, I, 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 I will say that there are, there are kind of small mistakes and they're big mistakes and they're, you know, so the, 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 uh, you all have heard me do this because the, the, this story, it's not even a story so much as an anecdote is uh, because you've heard me train, you know, we, we often ask our, our clients to close their eyes when they're relating the events of the trauma to us during the exposure exercise. And, and when I train people, I say that it's, you know, it, it's good for us as therapists that they close their eyes so they don't see the look of shock on our face when they first tell the story and they don't see me yawn. When, you know, when I've heard the story 27 times over the course of treatment and and I have I have yawned with my clients in the room and it's not always, you know, that that's a small mistake. Most of the time they have their eyes closed, which makes it a little bit easier to cover it up. But sometimes I've yawned even when when their eyes are open and, and you know, that that can take some work just to to make sure that they understand that it's not that I don't think it's important. It's, you know, I had a rough night last night or whatever it might be. Um, but the story that popped into my head is actually. Actually, I, I use a lot of metaphors when I work clinically with folks and I and I talk a lot about, you know, particularly doing exposure therapy. And I, I've done exposure therapy with PTSD clients and I've done exposure therapy with anxious clients with other disorders, obsessive compulsive and, and social anxiety and so on. I often try and find a, a metaphor that helps them understand the 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 
process involved. And, you know, when you do something repetitively, particularly something that makes you upset or anxious, um, and when you do it repetitively and nothing bad happens, oftentimes you don't feel so bad at the end. And, you know, we call it habituation or, or uh, you know, or, or as I tell my clients, they're just going to get used to it. And, that, and that's part of what we're after. So I, I, I have a number of metaphors that I use for this, but one of my favorites has been riding a roller coaster. And I tell an actual true story. Uh, when my when I was younger, when I was a kid, my brother is a couple years younger and I when we went to an amusement park one day and and I loved roller coasters as a kid and he hated roller coasters as a kid. And we finally coerced him, you know, coerced him onto the roller coaster and convinced him he wasn't going to die. And and it happened that that, that evening um, there had been a little bit of rain in the, and back in the olden days, amusement parks, you know, when it rained, people left as opposed to nowadays where, you know, you've paid $10,000 to get in. So you never leave. But, um, so, so it rained and the, and the crowds emptied out. And so we ride the roller coaster. And the first time my brother's like scream at the top of his lungs, Oh no, we're going to die. Oh my God. And, uh, and when we, when they stopped, they said, hey, you guys want to ride again? Because there's no line. And I thought that was a great idea. Sure, let's ride again. And so we rode again. And the second time my brother rides around and he's screaming his young lungs out, but he, we're not going to die this time. So that's good. And by the time he's ridden it three or four or five <laughs> times in a row, he's actually enjoying himself. So I use this story pretty regularly with my clients to, to discuss the idea of getting used to it or habituating. And one day I was sharing with one of my veteran clients, and, and he's watching me and listening attentively as I tell him this story and paint the picture of my brother riding the roller coaster for the first time. And for, I get done with the story and he looks me in the eye and he says, okay, I get it, but don't ever tell me that story again. He's so <laughs> because when I was a kid, I fell out of a Ferris wheel. Oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> And your, pod, your podcast listeners can't see this, but I just saw Jenna's face, and 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 that was kind of the face I made. I was like, oh no! <laughs> okay, I felt very much like I like took my foot and inserted it about as deep into my mouth as I possibly could, and apologetically, you know, I'm sorry. It's okay. I won't tell you the story again. But did you get it? Did you understand what I'm saying? And, and we we worked through it, but it was like you know, sometimes you say the wrong thing. Sometimes right. you have or the wrong metaphor and that was yeah that was that was a, it was a fun one at least so and he stuck with it we you know we uh, he, he did in fact understand what i was trying to communicate which was nice but it, it got us talking about a lot of different experiences he had in his life and kind of derailed that session um but then we got back into it the next session and he actually did quite well with treatment so um it it you know i, I as you all both know, because I know I've talked to you about cases over the years and, you know, sometimes it doesn't go quite like the book says it's going to go and, right. and you roll with it. And, and I do believe that it's absolutely true, you know, to be a good kind of manualized evidence-based clinician, a good therapist, you need to be a good therapist first, you know, listen to your clients and roll with what they, what they give you. And sometimes you're going to make a mistake and you just fix it. I love that. Recoverable. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, I'm thinking, I, I know for a fact you have another very similar story in your history that had to do with an example of a, a mother letting her child go into the waves and putting, you know, getting knocked down by the rogue wave and then dipping their toe in the water. And you realized as you opened, looked at your client whose eyes were bugging out of their head that they had experienced a tsunami and that wasn't the best metaphor to use with them either. So this no, maybe is no. a... Jenna, you've heard that story, but you've muddled it about a bit. So that, 
that metaphor of, of the waves is actually one of the ones that's included in the, at least the early version of the yes. PE manual, right? Um, and so it's often one that, that therapists will pick up and use. I, uh, by the time I saw this gentleman, I'd done enough of this that, that I, I knew that wasn't the right metaphor to use with him. So I, I used mm, it differently. All right. I've been mistelling that story all these years. Yeah, that's okay. He, he was he was fun for another reason. If you got time for another story, let's go for it. So, um, so the case you were remembering, Jenna, uh, was a, a gentleman who was um, caught in a tsunami a number of years ago. Um, now, but uh, his kids were uh, on vacation with him uh, where he was where he was caught, and so one of the ways his PTSD manifests was he was very. Um, very observant of any risks for his children and family. And so one of our exposure exercises, one of our uh, in vivo exercises fairly early on was to uh, ha have him take his family to a movie theater. And they went to the movie theater and they're watching a movie. And sure enough, in the middle of the movie, the fire alarm goes off and everybody has to evacuate the movie theater. And he came in to wow. see me the next, he came in to see me in the next session and said, did you call the movie theater? I said, I didn't even know what movie theater you were going to. I have no idea. What are you talking about? And he thought somehow I had set it up that they pulled the fire alarm while he was in there. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 I will say, I think he was mostly joking, but I think he was also a little suspicious that I had somehow <laughs> manipulated this, but, um, but yeah, he, he, he also did quite well, but um but yeah, it's, you know, it's fun stuff. That's awesome. You're very powerful. You your ends with the movie theaters. I love it. <laughs> well, Dave, this has been really fantastic. I, I think it's exciting for any of us that do work with trauma and, and, uh, you know, here just kind of what are the updates and what is the research telling us? And like Jenna said, it's nice to feel like we're on the right track and we're still job security or we're, we're treating people well. And, and, and perhaps not all of our listeners, you know, are trained in PE, CPT or EMDR. So it kind of brings me to like the, the end of every episode, as you well know, since you've heard all of them, is we like to give our listeners a bit of actionable Intel or some tips, something that they can do, something they can take from this episode and apply right away. So do you have a, a couple of tips for our listeners that are related to the CPGs or treatment in general or? Or, well, I would say, you know, <clears throat> first that we've been able to kind of scratch the very surface of the CPGs. Uh, the, there's a lot that's in there. Um, and I would really recommend that folks take a look at them. And and I know you've got in your uh, show notes, you've got the link to the, the website where they can yes. find them. And um, I would really recommend people take a look at them because... Um, because there's a lot more in there than what, what we've had a chance to talk about today to include sure. kind of a, a decision algorithm uh, that allows somebody, you know, kind of depending on where you're meeting your client, whether it's shortly after the trauma or after they've been struggling with PTSD for a long time, kind of walks you through decision-making steps for identifying, uh, you know, what treatments or, or evaluations you, you might want to be doing. Um, but also, uh, you know, there's text there that describes um, in detail, well, in some level of detail, <laughs> the, the the literature that was reviewed and and uh, you know what evidence we we use to support making decisions in one direction or the other. So I, I, that, that's one thing I would suggest. Um, I do think that uh, it's it's important, uh, if at all possible, um, for folks to get trained on on a treatment that that has evidence that it works. And I, I, I'm going to be you know despite my my uh, 
my personal preference for for certain treatments. I want to stay away from that and simply say, you know, not just those that are in the recommended category, but having the flexibility to be able to use those that are in the su suggested category. I, I would really encourage people to look at all of them. So, you know, I, I myself have not been trained in doing present-centered therapy, but it is a treatment that doesn't does not involve kind of directly confronting the trauma material. And so if you have a client where that's something they're very uncomfortable doing or they're, they're flat out refusing to do, um, you know, having a tool in your box that allows you to, to, to help that person even without doing the trauma-focused, you know, intensive trauma-focused work can be useful. So I would encourage people to look across those recommendations um, and, and not just limit themselves to the, you know, the top three, so to speak. Um, again, reminding people that that top, tier versus second tier is really about quality of research, not quality of, of treatment. Such a good point. And then you want three. So I got to come up with another one. Well, all right. So, <laughs> so, um, so this is a general one. It's not about the CPGs at all, but I know it's, it, it's certainly something that um, I've confronted over the years as, as I've talked to people about treating PTSD, you know, in, in the same way that the CPGs are a guideline and not a, not a requirement that, you know, it gives you space in which to, to make decisions. And I would encourage people to make decisions with their clients, uh, have discussions about what they, you know, what approach they want to take. Um, the same thing I think is true for manualized therapies. Oftentimes mm -hmm. the therapists pick up a manual and they think, Oh, I've got to follow it lockstep. And you know, the, the, the single worst session of prolonged exposure I've ever witnessed, I was, I was providing uh, supervision to somebody who basically read the session out of the book and it, and it was really bad. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and you know, that the therapist was looking down at the book, not looking at the client, which probably made it doubly bad, but um, you know, so I, I encourage people to think about these treatments which are manualized and therefore give you a framework in which to do the, the work. Um, but they're not such that you have to be lockstep. There's flexibility in how you apply them. And I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind as well. Those are great. Um, so just quick, quick, quick summary. One, review those CPGs, the links in the show note. Uh, two, um, do something with training to augment your skills. Get trained in in some of those first and second line treatments. Have some, you know, more tools in your toolbox so you can have flexibility with your clients. Uh, three is really think about those manualized treatments, those uh, those manuals that you have, and and apply them with flexibility. I think something that helps you apply those with flexibility is getting consultation too, um, so that you're sure. like, you have safe flexibility or kind of appropriate flexibility, um, you know, think through those choices that you're making, but, you know, don't do them lock stock. And, and I'm going to throw a fourth is watch Dave's webinar. It was great. It's in our archives and we'll put the link in the show notes too, uh, as another way to become more familiar with the CPGs and the process that went into formulating those. And Dave, thank you so much. You told some great stories. It's always a pleasure having the opportunity to sit down and chat with you. And we're really grateful that you've not only listened to every episode of the podcast, but now have your very I'm first one. In one. This is now great. In one. And we're going to try and, you know, see if we can just get you back and get a second one out of you. But um, thank you so much for all the information you shared with our listeners. It was, it was great to have you. Hey, thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. 
And thank you all for listening to Practical for Your Practice. We, uh, we hope you tune in for our next episode and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, like, and share. Until next time. <laughs>